Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. With over 200 episodes in 17 countries, over five seasons, with three million monthly listeners, we are Radio Strong. Now, here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. Hey, everybody, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm so excited today to be talking with a New York Times bestselling author. Her name is Karen Kingsbury. Now, her last name is spelled K-I-N-G-S-B-U-R-Y, and you can follow along if you're looking at your computer or you're at work today listening along. You can go to KarenKingsbury.com, and she has a new book out called Truly, Madly, Deeply, and you can go ahead and read the first three chapters online, which is super Super cool. I love, love, love when we get a taste of something uh, before we we dig into, uh, you know, purchasing a book or getting the digital download. I know I'm a big, big Kindle Oasis user. And Karen, if I really like a book, I will actually buy the audio version. I'll buy the um, the hard copy version and I will buy the digital because traveling a lot like I do with my company, I like to bring all my books with me because they become my friends. So Karen, Kingsbury, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sandra. It's so good to be with you. It's, it's, a, it's an honor and um, just really, yeah, exciting. So this is so exciting. You've got a new book coming out and you've got some, some television movie things coming up, I hear. Yes. Well, you know, the, <clears throat> the most exciting thing that anybody who's been reading my books would want to hear is that the Baxters, the television show, is now we have wrapped three seasons. So there are 36 episodes filmed, edited, and ready to go. And originally, the executive producer, Roma Downey, uh, working with MGM Studios, they had wanted to use this as a debut kind of a um, program on Roma's new streaming service, Mm -hmm. but such a competitive time for streaming services. So she's kind of tabled that. And now she is in the middle of a pandemic. She's got all this content and she is shopping it around to different streaming services and networks. And within a few weeks, we will have an answer as to where and when people can watch the Baxters. Oh, that's so exciting. So for those of you listening right now, you'll announce this on your Karen Kingsbury site so people can go there and find out where they can watch it. Yes, exactly. And I'll be making, it'll be a big announcement. And I'm sure it'll be on like, you know, all the regular news sites and that kind of thing, because people have been waiting for a while. And what's really fun is that my new book, Truly Madly Deeply, it's a standalone for sure, but it does involve the Baxters. So if I'm looking around and I'm thinking, oh, I'd like to write a story about an 18-year-old, everyone thinks is going to be a lawyer, but he decides to be a police officer. Well, it might as well be 18-year-old Tommy Baxter. So that's what happens with Truly Madly Deeply. Tommy Baxter is now in love for the first time. He's very, he's a very good young man. Um, very smart. And he takes a trip to New York City for the anniversary of 9-11. His grandfather was killed there. He never met him. And he has a conversation with a police officer. And that conversation changes everything for Tommy. He decides he wants to be a police officer. And that rocks his family's world. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. So let's talk about this 
where do these ideas come from? You know, like I know sometimes authors tell me, oh, ideas are everywhere, ideas are everywhere. But, you know, as we come up, we're coming up on the uh, NaNoWriMo month, you know, the November writing month where people try to write 50,000 words in a, in, a, in a month and 30 days. And we're in Preptober right now. We're recording in October and this will air in October. So we have a lot of people because this is this this specific episode is tied to Audible and it's also tied to NaNoWriMo. Where do your ideas come from? Like, were you a little girl that just saw stories everywhere? That was me. That was exactly me, Sandra. Seriously, I was five years old when I first took some paper and I stapled it together and I drew lines like where I would write. They were all going downhill. And then I called it the horse and horse was spelled wrong and I think pretty much every word but the was spelled incorrectly um, but it was the story of a, of a girl who had a horse and they got to only eat leftovers no idea where that came from it's, to this day I love horses on the other side of the fence uh, but it was my first book and I began writing in a kind of like short stories whenever I could it just poured out of me other people were out you know swinging a bat or bouncing a ball or painting and I was writing stories I loved it. And I still love it. You know, it's one of those things where um, I guess like through school, I kind of did the journalism track through college mm -hmm. because I thought, well, at least I'll be able to make a living as a writer. If I do it that way, it would be my plan B, but I could at least do it. And plan A was always to write novels, to write stories that would touch your heart and, you know, make you laugh and cry and walk away with a little more hope than before. Yeah, I absolutely think there's many of us listening today that did the same kind of route. I went to Northwestern, I went to Medill for my undergraduate and got my graduate degree there. And, you know, I got into the creative writing program, but my family and, and my, I agreed um, that I needed to make a living. So I chose the journalism route instead of the, you know, uh, fiction writing route because we had to make a living but I will tell you don't you think your journalism background suited you well for this because you do learn grammar you do learn how to say something very precisely you are absolutely right in fact you know kind of the other part of the question you asked a minute ago about where do story ideas come from mm -hmm. well I started off as a sports writer and moved quickly um, away from sports to the front page and I was doing the Sunday wrap-up like with the emotional kind of whatever the biggest news story was then they would give me you know a, a lot more inches and column inches to tell a wrap-up story that was more emotional so I was I was an emotional detective from early on, that was my job to see a story where nobody else might have seen one and to find the details and to ask the questions that took me to the next level of a story. So that still applies today. But not only that, there's a sparseness and a tightness that has to happen in journalistic writing, mm -hmm. or at least it used to have to happen <laughs> in journalistic writing and an accuracy. So, you know, you would fail an assignment if you got a gross factual error, the GFE, the dreaded GFE. Yeah. And, um, and I remember that still to this day. So even though it's fictitious, like I can't write about, you know, 
a diner on a corner of third and Johnson. If there isn't a diner on the corner of third and Johnson, Karen, I'm just going to stop you for a second right now. You know, as we talk about your best-selling novels and, you know, being on the New York times and all these different bestseller lists, which is so amazing. And your novels allow us to escape and get away. And for those of you who are feeling overwhelmed right now, then congratulations, you're a human being. And I want to thank our sponsor because our sponsor is Talkspace and they've been with us for about half a year now, and they're terrific. And there's a whole lot to be anxious about these days between this 24-7 news cycle, the pandemic, things that are going on in our government and our medical industry and our politics and our travel and the holidays coming up. It's just, it's just so overwhelming. And we all need to take care of our mental health. And we can work through our emotions with a licensed therapist. Now, this is something I do as a single parent. I have for 16 years because I need the voice of reason. I need somebody who's walked the single parent road before me who doesn't have an agenda in my personal life other than to make me the best single mom I can be and caring for my 87-year-old dad that puts me in the sandwich generation. So there's a lot of issues as I juggle elder care and child care. And Talkspace makes therapy affordable and accessible for everybody because we all need extra support to feel our best. We need advice. We need direction. We need to talk things out with people who don't have an agenda, who don't have feelings that are going to get hurt. Or if I put someone aside or I don't take their advice, it causes problems. So on Talkspace, you can talk to thousands of different licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties. Pick the one that's right for you. You can talk about anxiety, depression, relationships, you know, elder care, child care issues, or just, you know, how to navigate being a single parent in a pandemic. And no matter what, Talkspace will find you the right therapist to help you achieve your goals. Talkspace is affordable. It's a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. And instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7 and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week. And now Talkspace covers 40 million people for online therapy through their insurance or employer. And if you want to find out if you're eligible, go to Talkspace.com slash insurance. Talkspace is secure and private and they use the latest end-to-end encryption technology to store their client information and they comply with the latest HIPAA regulations. And you know, you can talk to your friends, but you don't want to burn them out. And talking to a therapist is so different because they have the expertise and knowledge to give me practical guidance. They also give us the support we need at an affordable price. And as a listener of this podcast, you will get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. So to match yourself with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com or download the app and make sure you use Use the code military mom to get a hundred dollars off your first month and show your support to the show. That's military mom and talkspace.com. You'll be glad you did. Now we're talking today with best-selling author Karen Kingsbury about her new novel, Truly Madly Deeply. And we were talking about Karen how important it is that the facts are checked. Even though you write fiction, which means you create it, it's a creative novel. How important is it that you get facts right in the stories like it's important that what you read in my fiction like in truly madly deeply is rooted like when I talk about a bad area of town that they're going to that area has to that's a real thing Mm -hmm. and the crime statistics I refer to need to be accurate so those lessons I learned as a journalist on how to hook you with the lead 
yeah. and how to leave you with something at the end and the tag that makes you want to turn to chapter two after reading chapter one. All of that, I mean, all of it came from being a journalist. And, and you know, young writers will reach out to me and they'll say, okay, I want to be an author. So should I be, I guess I should be an English major. And I always tell them, no, not unless you want to be an editor. You know, English majors become editors, journalists, you know, journalism majors, they become writers. Right, because they, the, the number one thing that they teach you in journalism school, the two things that I remember, at least, number one is what's the story? Like, it's just that simple. What's the story? You know, if it's a car crash, is the crash the story? Or is it the fact that, you know, there's 1800 goldfish that are all flopping around the freeway? You know, what, what's the story? And the other one that my professor Haney, he's rest in peace. He was such a crotchety old man, but he would look at us and go, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. And basically it's like fact-checked, 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 fact-checked. Cause there's nothing worse than going into a story and, and stumbling upon some inauthenticity. If totally. it's even the reaction of the character. Yeah. You know, if you yeah. look and you go, okay, no one does that. Like I can always tell when somebody writes dialogue with children that doesn't have kids. Totally. Absolutely. You know, because they, they, they talk like little miniature adults. And yes, if you're raising Gandhi or Einstein, maybe that's the case. <laughs> you know, but you, but. I mean, writing dialogue is something I think there's a real art to it. And it's different from quoting somebody in a newspaper article. Can we talk about how do you write dialogue? You know, for me, it's going to be sparse. There's, I also am a person who gives direction in my, I don't like the words said, asked, exclaimed, because the punctuation tells you that. Mm -hmm. And if you can't, I've got to think of a more creative way. Now, obviously, if you're reading the story out loud, the word said or the word asked, those words can become helpful. But if you're not and you're reading it, you know, you, you see a question mark, then give me some other beat that they they stood, that they paced their, you know, the floor, they walked to the window, they stared out, they hesitated, they paused something else in the way of giving a beat. But the beats are really important. And I'm not a big fan of like the dialogue that just kind of where you almost have to go back six paragraphs and go, now who's, I, I've lost who's talking. Right. I don't know who's talking anymore. So that's really important not to see that. And then to me, it's, it's just, there's a pacing to dialogue. We, we don't talk in block text. We take breaks. We don't always speak in complete sentences. Mm -hmm. We say, it's a beautiful day, really. You know, like we, we have these kind of like fragments that I think are really critical to authentic dialogue. So in a dialogue is really, it's why I love screenwriting. And that's something I've started doing is turning my own books into screenplays um, in on the Hallmark Channel. Maggie's Christmas Miracle was one of my books that my my son Tyler is my screenwriting partner, and we got to write that script. So we're 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 moving ahead several scripts now that are yet to be made, but that are in the process because I love dialogue. So it's it's one of my favorite parts. Well, and one of the things that is neat about dialogue is. And I agree with you, like, you know, there's nothing worse than than dialogue that runs together and you can't tell which character is when the writer gives the emotion that I'm supposed to feel like that's really frustrating for me. Like, oh, yeah. I want to be in the mind of that character and I want to feel their feelings and I want them to be my feelings. And I think that's a true art of kind of the show don't tell. Totally. Yeah, that's why you can't use the L-Y words. I mean, they didn't say it joyfully. They said it, and then they jumped out of the chair and ran across the room. Show me that they're joyful. 
Right. Don't, don't tell me that they're joyful because that's just like, yeah, it's just a cheap way of writing and it's not going to make me engaged in the character. I, I don't want to be on the surface. I want to be in their heart. So to me, when I write, I switch points of view. I, I alternate points of view between three, four major characters. And when I, and, and that's, it is a unique, but it's a way of, it's almost like a visual, it's almost a cinematic way of writing. And when I'm in their point of view, I am deep POV. So I am the person who you're going to get some internal thought. I mean, it's as deep as if it were in the first person. It's very important to me to allow you to feel what they're feeling. So that, like you said, now I'm feeling those things. Because that, why do we read? You know, like like at the very basic, you know, I know there's a lot of um, young writers going to be listening to this podcast as part of the NaNoWriMo month. You know, why are you... Why are you reading? Yeah, I mean, you're reading to experience vicariously every aspect of the physical, intellectual, emotional, and in my case, certainly the spiritual sides of this story. It's, it's voyeurism really at its greatest and allows you to do what you can't do when you watch a film, which is you get to cast it. You know, I, I never give too much physical detail about my characters because I want you to cast it just enough that you see what you want to see and you will feel as they feel. And you will experience exactly what they're going through. Absolutely. And to be able to be able to escape. You know, I've I've done a bunch of shows with um Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson. And Jeffrey Wilson is a Navy SEAL doctor, and Brian Andrews was a submarine officer, and they write military thrillers. And mm -hmm. what makes their stories so good is they lived a lot of it, so they can include something and this is where when you talk about beginner writers write in your own backyard you know don't try to write a navy seal thriller <laughs> you know if you're probably not a navy seal or you know maybe in a navy seal family you have to be a study of what you're writing i really believe that i i really don't think maybe there's somebody out there that can pick up a topic and write a great book about it but more often than not there's elements of ourselves that show up in our writing. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about how do you show up in your writing? Well, that's um, profoundly true. And so I, uh, you know, when I was raising our six kids, so been married 32 years and then we have six children, the youngest is now 23. But when we were raising them, they were playing soccer, they were doing Christian youth theater. Um, so we were at auditions and we were at plays and we were at soccer games and we were busy living out that life and my books I, that's when I was writing about the Baxter family and they had six kids and they were going you know they were young adults so they were going to um they had an aspect of their world that was like kind of figuring out who they were and more like mid-20s my kids weren't in their mid-20s so I just invented another family to be friends with them the Flanagans and the Flanagans had three boys adopted from Haiti. They were us. I mean, they really were us. And they opened up the door to some of those characters who were doing theater. One who was like the theater director and the comedy of watching young kids go to their, do their auditions and how fun that moment. And it was just such a, it was such a beautiful time. If you want to know what I was living, it was reflected always in what I was writing because you have to write what you know. I feel like, you know, God puts you in situations, again, being an emotional detective, and it might be somebody you know, or something you see a documentary or something else that you get immersed into a topic. My book coming out next year um, is called A Distant Shore, and it does involve an FBI secret agent mm -hmm. who's undercover, 
working in a, uh, to break up a drug trafficking and sex trafficking ring. And I had to do a ton of research and really immerse myself in that world because it's not my world. But I also felt like it was time to write about something a little different too. So sometimes we as writers hit that place. Like I've written 26 or seven books about the Baxters and I love them. And I loved watching those kids grow up. And now Tommy Baxter's 18 and truly madly deeply. But sometimes I just, you know, you need to turn the page and go, I want to be in Belize. I want to experience what this would be like to be this 26-year-old FBI agent. And, and he's, he, his family is no longer alive. And what is that like? Why does he, what, what drives him mm-hmm. to want to rescue people out of trafficking? So um, yeah, so you're, you're right. You either write what you live and know, or you better immerse yourself very fully. <laughs> oh, sure. Like I've interviewed, um, I've in- interviewed, um, uh, a lot of authors that have gone on ride-alongs they've had you know like military thrillers like if they're military family they've they've gone and stayed on a military base i mean there's there's things i think you know you can do to fully immerse yourself but at the core of every book i don't care what the topic is i don't care if it's a military thriller if it's a medical thriller or if it's a drama or a comedy the core is a good story And so what do you think are some of the elements of a really good story? Well, you need to give them, you know, insurmountable kind of conflicts, obviously, the kind of thing that it's just like, I don't see a way out. I mean, as the reader, you really can't see the way out. That has to be important that you're going to, I'm now going to, you know, glam onto this and I'm going to ride this out because I want to see how in the world they're going to get this person through this. Um, my one or two, I wrote a, a pair of books called Even Now and Ever After <clears throat> that were military books. And um, we, you know, I'm not military and none of, no one in my family is, but I have such great respect mm-hmm. for the military and for the service that they give to our country. And, and for that matter, for police officers, which is why Truly Madly Deeply is set in the police world. Um, but for the military books for Even Now and Ever After, I had a, a young couple who got pregnant and their families pretty much tore them apart. And this was before we had the internet, before we had emails and social media. So they went their separate ways, <clears throat> excuse me. And, you know, they ended up being uh, completely separated. This child ends up being raised by her grandmother. And now she's in college and wants to find these parents and the parents turn out to be on total opposite political pages. And that was kind of became the com- the conflict <clears throat> that the one the woman is now a she's a, a reporter for Time magazine doing exposés and whatnot on a war that shouldn't be being fought like you know very critical of the military and very critical of anything on the right and um, and but yet her she she's plausible and yeah. we can we can feel for her and understand and she's had a very hard life she's never found love again whereas the guy grew up and he became a captain in the military. But, you know, they're, they're, they never found love and they had the deepest love before. And this, this daughter who doesn't know either of them finds a way to bring them together into the same place and into the same space. So can they find love again or are these differences too great? And what about the daughter they never knew? So, so many unanswered questions. Yeah. And I think, you know, unanswered questions become a really great driving force I have to find out. I mean, I've got to get the answer to that question. So, um, you know, even now and ever after, by book two, the, our young college girl, Emily, she falls in love with a young soldier. And this is 
again, you know, now that she knows her parents, she wants nothing more than for them to get married. She wants them to fall in love and be married. But she meets this soldier and he and they're head over heels, but he's getting shipped off Mm -hmm. to Afghanistan. And so, you know, it really ends up becoming a tragedy in this in the story that ends up bringing the two parents finally together. So it takes two books to get there. And in the midst of that, I got to know a woman named Karen Dingler. And Karen Dingler's son, Josh Dingler, was killed overseas in Afghanistan as a soldier, a young 18, 19 year old guy. I went to her house and I sat down and I looked through her photo albums with her and I let her share all the memories of Josh. And I wrote a page in the, in, in the book, in the front of the book of Even Now and Ever After, honoring Karen Dingler and her son, Josh, and the sacrifice that Josh had paid and how in many ways, his was sort of that real life inspiration for the character I wrote about in the young, young soldier going off to war in the second book, which was Ever After. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the through line that I hear with you is heart. Mm-hmm. What's going on with their heart? That's exactly it. People, you know, back in the day, I had one publisher who would market my books with packets of tissues <laughs> because it's this, it's, I'm wanting to reach the deep level of where your emotions are. And it's like I say, it doesn't always have a happy ending, but it always has a hopeful ending mm-hmm. and that we we're going to have trouble. I mean, there's no, no one gets a pass on that, mm-hmm. but how do we survive it? And when you, when you get to ride piggyback through life with some of these characters and what they're going through, you will walk away more hopeful that you can get through whatever you're going through too. Well, and that's the one thing that I don't think that gives enough credit to, to authors of your genre is there's so many times that I read these books. Now I have to read a ton of self-help books for my radio shows. Everybody's got a self-help book for these things. But then I look back to parables and I think of, you know, I always think of the Bible with parables and how a story teaches something and one of the things that I love about books like yours is I always come away after this full emotional immersion from joy to sadness from laughter to tears you know you have this whole experience but when you are really emotionally and intimately involved with these characters you learn and you see what a character does. Like sometimes I'll, I'll read a book, Karen, and this character will make the same mistake that I have made. And it's kind of like, you know, you're reading it and then you're like, oh, like, like I'm a really bad liar. And when I get caught in a lie, the few times I've been caught in a lie, I get big blotchy spots all over my neck. I can't breathe. I sweat like really, really bad liar. And so whenever a character in a book lies, I have this like response, like I literally start to sweat, I panic, you know, and I think, you know, when the, when the character eventually tells the truth or the truth comes out, like we can all breathe this sigh of relief. And there's, there's this intrinsic values aspect to really good writing that I like, like, I want to, I want to root for my character, even if she makes the mistake 10 times, and in the last chapter, she does it the right way. Like, like it's almost like my joy, you know, my accomplishment. And I think there's so much passive 
teaching going on. So when you look at raising your six kids and, you know, all of the things, I mean, that's like, I have two and I'm a single mom and I'm like, oh my gosh, how can somebody do six? My mom did, but I couldn't do six. Do you think that the raising of your children opened your eyes to all the choices that people make, especially when they don't think they have a choice? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, you're, I, again, I feel like as a parent and kudos to you because two by yourself versus six with a husband or, you know, your partner is definitely hard. I mean, it's just hard. It's, it's parenting AP to, to be the single parent. Um, I feel like in, in watching my kids, I'd not only had their lessons I would learn that would then become part of stories, but there were also lessons that I felt like God was showing me like, yep, you see how like, it's like the, the two and a half, three-year-old who comes to you with, you know, cookie crumbs all over their face. And no, no, I didn't No, I didn't eat a cookie. No, you know, and it's like, okay, well, but except you have crumbs all over your face, you know, and I can, I could just like hear God along the way saying, yep. And that's exactly how silly you look when you try to think you're going to get one pulling over on me, you know, right. <laughs> so we see in our kids, you know, we watch their delight at things like earthworms. And, you know, I have three little grandsons right now and just going over to their house, they live real, real close, which is nice. And the delight they have in a rain puddle or a fallen leaf. And I think, you know, let's not ever lose that wonder. There are lessons we're learning through watching them live. And that's exactly what happens to a reader. The reader is immersed into the book and they are, they're experiencing something that they wouldn't have understood before. So, you know, I had a book, um, someone like you, it came out this last spring and it was about embryo donation, embryo adoption. And I didn't know much about that, but I'd gone to an event. So again, be the emotional detective. If you were a writer out there, you want to be looking for these things around you that are not normal. And I was at an event and there was a woman um, one of, who was like kind of my hostess. And she said, do you see that mom over there? And she pointed over to this beautiful Hispanic woman. And I said, yes, I see her. And she said, do you see her three blonde children? And I said, oh, wow, look, yeah, I didn't, I mean, sure. Well, she has three blonde children. That's awesome. She said, yeah, but they're her children. And she had them through embryo adoption. So somebody donated these three embryos. They'd been on ice for like, for years, they were leftovers that the family who had done their in vitro fertilization didn't need them anymore and donated them. This woman couldn't have children. She took on the three embryos and has these three triplets that are blonde as could be, but they're her biological, I mean, they're not biological, but they're definitely her. Like she gave birth to these children, right. you know? So I thought, okay, that's fascinating. And I thought, you know, what if they were like, there's like a, a girl, what if, and I just said, why not the Baxters? Cause I've already, we already know the Baxters. So I decided, what about one of the Baxter girls? Now she's 22 and all this time she's not been a Baxter because she was adopted as an embryo and, you know, came from her mother, but wasn't ever biologically related to her mother and to the Baxter family. And then across the country, there would be a, a you know, a young man who's in love with this beautiful girl, but she's wild and she's just a little bit too wild. Like she just can't seem to settle in and she thinks that he's too um, safe Mm -hmm. And but they do have a beautiful and incredibly, um, the chemistry between them is, is like, you can feel it. I mean, it's amazing. And so she dies in a car accident and at the tragic moment there at the hospital, her mother admits we should never have given away the other embryo. We should have had that baby. 
And then London would have had a sister. So now this grieving young man's like, he's just compelled to go and find this other embryo. So he stumbles upon Maddie Baxter, who's now works at a zoo and she's graduated from college and she is, she doesn't have any idea that this is her story. Mm -hmm. And her mom who carries this lie has never told her, is always looking for the right time to tell her. Her parents have never said anything. And now suddenly a stranger, a handsome stranger shows up at the zoo where she works and says, I know about your sister. I know about your adoption. And she has never, ever, ever even thought she might be adopted. Of course not. She came from her mother. You know, there's pictures of her mother being pregnant with her. And so it begins this quest for Maddie to figure out what is family right. and what is, what is it to be a parent and what does that mean? And then to go and find out this other family and talk to these grieving parents. And she, she's the spitting image looks just like her sister who she never knew. So, you know, like what a complex, what happened was when I saw the idea, when I saw this mother with her little three embryo kids, these little um, snowflake babies, it opened the idea of, wow, the what if game, which I think comes from journalism too. Sure. You know, began playing out in my mind. What if, what if you gave up an embryo and what if that baby ends up, what, I mean, what about those complications? And I actually had my tagline was, um, Science is raising questions only God can answer. Right. So it's fun. It's fun to be able to have those kinds of things, like to be always looking, you know, maybe it's some new hot topic like that. And I didn't know that there were adoption agencies across the country that have at this point right now, roughly 500,000 embryos are on ice. Oh my goodness. And it's a pretty easy way to get pregnant. Like versus if you can't, if you've tried everything else, like it's a lot less expensive than adopting a baby who's already born and it's very successful. These, they find, these are babies who generally speaking, their parents took great care of themselves. They were trying to get pregnant and sure. they, were, they were on vitamins and they were doing all the right things. And then they did IVF and these are just like the leftover embryos. Anyway, so I was so fascinated when I'm, when I'm, when something is troubling to me, I work it out in a story. Mm -hmm. When something's fascinating to me, I work that out in a story. So that's kind of, you know, it always gives me a, a reason to be excited about the next book. Well, yeah. And when you work out these, these ethical dilemmas, you can do it in a way that is organic and you're not on a soapbox saying this is what should be, you know, you're not there for judgment. You're not there to say this is right or wrong. You're right. there to open people's like, I love that question. What is family? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In this particular couple, they had her because they couldn't have kids. So they somebody said, hey, this is cutting edge. But, you know, we came into some these frozen embryos. And if you're interested, you know, so they said, sure. And they I think there were two or three embryos, but this the one took that was Maddie. And a lot of times after you have a baby that way, your body is like, oh, get it. OK. And then you can have like maybe a natural kind of pregnancy. That's what happens to these characters. So two sisters now that really aren't biologically related and two sisters with this other embryo that, you know, so there's so many different complications that went into it. And it allowed me to just feel all the things that would go with that. Like you said, it's the heart, you know, it, yeah. it was there. I found in my story, really, nobody's the bad guy. And that is often true that even my people, even my um, antagonists have to have a heart. They have to have a, a reason that we meet them in this place. And then we because get otherwise it, it becomes comical, you know, yeah. like the one thing that I don't like in, in a lot of books is when it's a one dimensional 
villain character, you know, the Darth Vader that just has no, you know, they're just so awful. They're so bad. And, you know, not that you should fall in love with the antagonist, but they have to be, because here's the other thing is like, sometimes I'm like, I'll read these books and the, the antagonist, you know, could be like an ex-husband or a boyfriend or something like that. You kind of like, it begs the question of like, what did you see in this guy in the first place? Right. You know, if he is so bad and he is so wrong and he's so this, um, you know, what, what, what's wrong with our heroine? Right. Exactly. You know, you have got to provide the reader with the reasons that that person ever could have loved them in the first place. That has to be there. And, you know, like in a story, like um, someone like you with the embryo adoption, it was almost for me difficult at times to determine who really was, or was it, who was the antagonist or was that an elusive role that was kind of shifting at times? I think the, the girl herself for her, her reaction felt like she was the antagonist. I mean, you know, obviously Brooke and Peter, the parents, um, should have told her sooner. We can all agree on that, but we also can agree that it never felt like the right time. You know, like she was their daughter. She looked like them. Like it just well, looks like yeah, almost- you can, you can totally understand, like, don't poke the dog. You know what I can- <laughs> Yeah. Doing, going pretty well. Why do we want to rile that, that up and create a problem where there wasn't one? Yeah. When, when is that convenient? You know? So it was just a lot of fun. I love, I love doing that. Writing, writing about something like truly madly deeply. I got to go to our local police station, sit in the police car. You know, I, again, I knew friends and family members who were officers. So it wasn't hard to understand the heart behind their actions in 99% of the time, but it was, it was important to be able to sit in the car and to kind of be like, okay, give me a tour. How does, how does this feel? Like if I'm doing a ride along, um, and that program wasn't working in our area at the time, but I might as well have done one because I got to get the complete tour of yeah. what was going on and what was happening in the car and what a, there's a state of simulator. I got to go through that and what that would feel like. Um, you know, and my, it's funny because again, my son and I, the youngest one, we would watch cops all the time together. He was just obsessed. And I have to say, I'd be like, this is so hard. Like, I can't believe how hard it is to be a police officer Yeah, and make these decisions, you know, in the moment. And there was a documentary that was done where uh, a person who was pretty critical of police had come forward and had decided that he would like to be, take part in some sort of reenacting or simulating kind of situation so he could feel what that was like and he could show them how easy it would be to make a great decision in the single moment's time mm-hmm. of course it's so easy you know and so he had three different cases he shot and killed an unarmed person in the simulating right. you know simulated type experience twice and he himself was killed once all three he failed right and after at the end he very humbly was like i mean i stand corrected like this is a hard job where you have to make decisions so much based on you know just you your training I mean you're you have to and in that moment become machine-like in your decision about which weapon to pull and whether to pull a weapon and whether to aim it and whether to fire it those are all huge decisions that no officer I mean if an officer wanted to just do bad things I feel like they would just step away from being a police officer and they would know how to hide it better than anyone and they would go and do that but, to, yeah, but that's easy. You know, that's simple. Yeah. It's simple to paint people with, you know, with a brush that that doesn't require you to actually get involved. You know, I have a military friend who shot a kid and he has a really hard time with this. And he was over in either Iraq or Afghanistan. And 
somebody came out the window with a, you know, with a weapon and was firing on him and his buddies and he shot him and it turned out to be like an eight or nine year old boy. And he has to live with that. And, you know, when you look at these split second decisions, you know, you can't recall a bullet, you can't bring it back. But you also can't imagine what it's like to be in a combat situation. I've been in combat trainer simulators and, you know, and there's, there's noises, there's things going off. There's all these things, you know, it's so easy to look at the TV and go, well, how could you do that? Yeah. Right. You know, and that's where fiction can really bring us into environments to go, wow, I, I don't know where I would shoot. I don't know what I would do. And I don't know what I would do in that situation. Um, I think back Karen to one time I got put in a police car. I was in a car accident, just a simple little fender bender in the snow in Chicago. And the man in the other car had a brand new car and it wasn't insured. And he was so mad at me, even though he hit me, I was, so the policeman took my head and he pushed me in the back of the police car. And, and I didn't know what was going on. I thought I was being arrested. I'm like, there's this plastic glass. I'm like, wait, there's no handles back here. You know, this whole thing. Cause you know, I had never been in a police car in my life and I didn't, I wasn't friends or family with police. So I didn't know what was going on. So finally, after like 10 minutes, I see them arrest this guy, all this stuff is going on. And he finally opens the door. And by this time, you know, Karen, I'm literally bawling. Cause I'm thinking, you know, I'm 20 years old. I'm at Northwest. Western. I'm in my dad's car, like, oh my God, you know, what's happening? And then I'm like, what did I do? And he looked at me and he said, I was protecting you. He said, I didn't know if he was going to hit you. He was so angry. He goes, once he surveyed the situation, he realized the guy was on some sort of amphetamine or some sort of whatever. So he's like, I put you in the back of the police car for your own protection. He goes, that way I could handle with him. I knew you were protected. So that little experience, you know, shows us just how much we don't know. And that's why a really good writer, you know, like in your case, can paint these pictures of really demonstrating what we don't know, and what we can't possibly know. And given the experience, we might end up doing the same thing. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. And, And a lot of the research that I did with truly madly deeply, um, about police officers was I, I involved myself in some stories that showed the extremes of police work too. Like um, the way that they would love, there, there might be a moment where you're pulling over somebody or you're, you know, you're interrupting a drug bus or dr- a drug um, sale going on and you pull up and, and people start to run and they're running and you know, you, you're chasing after them and they pull a weapon or they don't. I mean, you're, it's, all, it's all very volatile. Tommy Baxter is on some ride-alongs where that happens, mm-hmm. but he's able to hear the one guy, you know, he, he drops his weapon, he puts his hands up and as they're, as they're talking to him and, and, you know, had to cuff him because he was involved in this thing, but the police officer says, you know, we could use you on our force. Like you would know how to recognize things. We don't know how to recognize. So why don't you, why don't you not do this? Why don't you not be with this kind of group? But why don't you, why don't you try to think that in two years from now, you could be wearing a badge and you could be making a difference. Mm-hmm. And like the kid starts to cry, you know, like that whole idea of seeing something really specific play out where the officer, obviously they don't get into their uniform in the beginning of the day to go out and in broad daylight, shoot and kill somebody who doesn't have a weapon. They, right. they, they might as well shoot themselves in the middle of Times Square. They're, they're right. going to only destroy their own life. 
So how then, you know, can we, and I, I do think, you know, this is not brought up in the book, but as a side note, I do think that police officers could use more money. We could, we should increase their budgets for more training. They need 2020 training. How do I respond when cameras are rolling? Right. Whereas in the past, you might've been told, don't talk about the case. Don't, you know, this is a private matter. You aren't allowed to say anything, but now maybe you should say, you know, you know, sir, remember you're having a fentanyl overdose, sir. And that's why, remember, sir, that's, you know, the, say things that they can catch on the cameras that will diffuse a situation and stop a possible riot because you're being more clear. Be more right, clear. And stop, stop the little telescopic lens of just one small little part. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's training that could go on. I think it'd be nice to see them have more breaks. You know, like, of course, they're going to get jaded. Like, I can't even imagine. I, I can't imagine without faith having being able to make sense of any of that like your friend who had had the victim who was eight years old i mean as a as a believer for me it's like well you know he was being groomed clearly to be a fighting killer against american forces and, and allies so that poor child he didn't have any hope anyway but a child goes to heaven right so he was spared that little child gets to have eternity in heaven because of how that played out and again not that you're going to want to walk away from that going, wow, I did a good thing by the, but, but you had to do it. It was like, a, you didn't have a choice, right? You didn't have a no. choice. And so it, it's, um, it's those kinds of moments. So that become the impetus for great storytelling where you can then examine it from all the different angles and really get a chance to, to walk out repercussions, motivations and how that alters perspective. your perspective, right? You know, I think of, you know, I was a lifeguard for six straight years on Lake Michigan. And, you know, I used to watch Baywatch when I moved out here to California and how funny it was. Like, honestly, in the six years I was there, I think I did three open water rescues, three, six sure. years, like seriously sitting in sure. that, you know, the, sitting in that, you know, chair for six years. And then, you know, three open water rescues, you know, where you literally run into the water to help somebody, you know, and I think our, our media shapes so much that it's nice to have an alternate voice in a book, or if a book becomes a movie or a book becomes a television show, because we really do only see a very small snippet of one small side like if you literally did a book or a video on one open water rescue that i did that's right. not even close to being what the big picture looked like right question which part of michigan did you live in or did you live in michigan uh yeah well i did I, well i lived i used to work for the kalamazoo gazette so i lived in kalamazoo and then um i was at the on the um chicago side the the northwestern side of lake michigan Okay, from Northwestern, yeah, which of course is one of the top journalism schools. But my dad grew up in Battle Creek. Nice. Yeah, and then I was raised till I was 10 in Ann Arbor. So again, going back to, you know, your very, what you write, what you know, after I had done my time, you know, as a reporter, I wrote the story uh, Where Yesterday Lives. And it was about a girl who was a reporter mm -hmm. who grew up in Michigan and vacationed in Charlevoix and went to Petoskey and, you know, Mackinac Island. And it was all the places and things that I already knew. Um, when people are starting off writing, that's their best choice. Like you take some aspect of your story, fictionalize it. That's fine. Make it more dramatic, raise the stakes, but put, you know, write what you know. And here's, what's really beautiful about research and writing what, you know, you won't share all of that in your story. That'd be boring. Like, you know, me immersing myself in police work, 
for truly madly deeply. I didn't, all of that is not in there. I don't give you a tour of the car and tell you every <laughs> item that's in there, but because I knew it, my story is believable. Yes. When I needed him to reach for something, I knew where it was. Right. And that makes it believable. So by your, if you write what you know in your world, you, everything about that is real and tangible. You aren't going to talk about it all. It's not like you're going to just give a litany of what it's like to have been a lifeguard. You know, you're, you're not, you, to where that's applicable, fine, but it's not like you don't need all those details. You just need to be believable in the details you do have. Right. Right. And it's like the, 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 the little detail, like I would always say the devil is in the detail. Right. And I remember when I was young, I used to, there's a lady down the street. I grew up on a lake. And so there's a lady down the street who would take her books when she was done with them and you could buy them for 10 cents. So I would get a dollar and I'd walk down to the end of this lake and I put my dollar in the box and I would take 10 books. And I remember I was so excited to get this book that the, the, it was a romance, a Harlequin romance, probably that had the characters going to my childhood lake and even better going on a date at Roseland Park, which was at the head of my lake, you know, up this was, this was in Western New York when I lived there, Canandaigua Lake. And I was so excited for this. And when I read it, it was clear the lady had never been there. Mm. She was talking about like, you know, there's one roller coaster, one teacup ride, there was a little teeny haunted house. And then there was like a ferry boat. Like that was mm-hmm. it. You know, she had turned it into the six flags kind of, but she named it Roseland park. She said they went there. There was all this parking. I mean, there was no parking here and there was a dirt like cow pasture where you parked in like, you know, this uh. is, you know, but it was clear. And I, I, I wanted, I actually wrote to Harlequin. I was probably like, I don't know, 16, 17. And I'm like, why did you let your writer do this? Like name it something else, make it somewhere else. Cause if it's a fantasy, you can imagine the writer's fantasy, but if you set your character somewhere, yeah, you better have been there because in this case, this lady, clearly the writer had never been there because the way she described it was insanity. And I never finished the book yeah, because I just stopped there and I'm like, this is not like, I don't know what it was. It was offensive to me. I don't know why, but it was. Well, yeah. And you wanted to feel the dirt of that dirt parking lot. And you wanted to see the one single silhouette of the roller coaster that was there. You wanted to feel it and smell it and, and be there. And she took that away from you. So that's um, real sloppy and not necessary. And especially now, I mean, now you have access to, you can Google earth it. You can yeah. walk. It. You don't need to, there's no excuse. You can go to a live cam almost anywhere on the earth now, you know, just, to see what that looks like. In my book coming up next year, A Distant Shore, it's called with the FBI agent. Um, I have them on the beaches of Belize. And that sounds so lovely and romantic. You know, you um, land in Belize City. That's where you that's where you fly into. And in my imagination, having never been to Belize, I wanted to believe that the pristine white sandy beaches were right off the airport. You know, you just right there and they're not. There is no pristine, beautiful beach out of Belize City. You have to drive an hour south, hour and a half south to get to Placentia to be able to get to the ones we see in the commercials or whatnot that the resorts are at. And so I had to really like, thankfully there was, cause I needed to be in Belize City, needed that to be, that was where this was gonna go down. Thankfully there was a, there's a very small stretch called Belize City Beach that does have sand, but it's small. 
And that becomes then part of the story for my character, the girl who is being trafficked, um, longed to know what it was like to walk endlessly on the white sandy beaches rather than the hundred yard strip that she was confined to. So it actually becomes a piece of her freedom when she's free that she gets to walk this beach she only dreamed about. Whereas if I had put that beach in Belize City, people, they just write you right off. It's like, that's not realistic. Yeah, because it's funny because it's it's a story and it's a fantasy, you know, or, a, you know, a story. It's 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 not intended to be real, but the characters, when you put them places, I do think you've got to be really mindful of where you put those characters and what they're doing if it makes sense. You know, I think of the old Superman movie. I don't know if you remember when somebody was falling. I think it was Superman that was falling in Niagara Falls. And I remember as a kid being there with my brothers and sisters, we're all going to see the Superman movie. And this was in Niagara Falls. So everybody started cracking up because they're like, we all know the falls is 200 feet. Like if you fall, you're going to hit the bottom in like five seconds and Superman yeah. keeps falling and falling. You start hearing all this giggling in the audience and people are like, how big are the falls? Like, what is, you know, <laughs> you know, and of course the Hollywood, you know, producers would know, you know, they exaggerated it, but you can't exaggerate reality because then you lose the trust of the reader. Yeah, that's true. And that's true with film too. Like imagine the story set in Georgia, um, you know, or Missouri, and, and now we're walking down the street and you pass a palm tree. Right. You're careless. I mean, you know, okay, we get that it might not have been, now you've taken us out of the story. Right. Because, you know, you can, it's fiction, sure, but there's no palm trees in Missouri. So you can't have a fictitious palm tree in Missouri that's just flat out careless. And, uh, you know, so as you're writing a book, that's, that's super important for new authors to remember. If you want to write about something, then you better know it. And you can find out there's a way to do that now. So if you can't figure it out, then write it, put it somewhere else, you know, have a, write about something you know better. Right. Absolutely. And that's like, you know, we'll end today's um, episode with one of my other favorite professor Haney from Northwestern uh, tips. He's the one that said like, you know, if, in, you know, if your mother says you, it, she loves you, check it out. The other one is if in doubt, leave it out. Because if you don't know, and if you don't have the answer, or you don't know, like, I remember reading a book recently where the guy catches a smelt, and I was like, what? Like, smelt is bait. You're yeah. not going to catch a smelt. Like, you know, you're not going to put a lure <laughs> in and catch a smelt. That's like the same size. And again, grew up on a lake, so I would know these things. But I do think, you know, for our uh, NaNoWriMo writers, especially this month, to really the devil's in the details. If in doubt, leave it out. If your mother says she loves you, check it out. Like those are two little Professor Haney things from 30 years ago, but I still think they stand true today. Here's something that I like to do as I'm writing my novel. Sometimes, you know, you're in the moment and you're telling the story. The characters are alive. You can just feel what's happening and you can see it. And sometimes I'm in a moment like that and I come across something that I'm going to write about, like a park or something. And I don't have the details I need, but I don't want to stop. I don't right. want to take a minute right then. So I'll put two X's. I just put, it's, it's easy to word search. So I'll just put two X's and just keep on going. Then at the end of the manuscript, before I'm going to submit it, I'm going to word search out my double X's and I'm going to research. I'm going to switch my little right brain where I live over to the left brain and become a journalist again and make sure I get that detail right. Wonderful. Great, great advice. So for those of you who liked what you heard today, I just think she's lovely. Her name is Karen Kingsbury. 
She's a New York Times, number one New York Times bestselling author for a reason. Her new book out is Truly Madly Deeply. I encourage you guys to come back in the coming months, whenever you listen to this podcast, wherever you pick it up, to check out to see where the Bacters are and when they're coming to a screen near you. You're not going to want to miss it. So Karen, you said you've got another book coming out next year. Do you have a title for it yet? So you can give us a teaser. Yeah, that one is called A Distant Shore. And it is about a a 26-year-old FBI agent who is undercover and he's working to break up a drug ring and a drug trafficking and sex trafficking ring. And there is a 19-year-old girl who's about to be sold into an arranged marriage uh, with a a warring, soon-to-be brothering kind of a drug gang. And so they're going to try to unite these two gangs through this forced arranged marriage. So she needs rescuing. But it's, a, it's the kind of a story where we come back and we realize that, well, 10 years earlier, this very same girl was rescued from this beach by this FBI agent who was just a 16-year-old kid on vacation with his family. Wow. So there's this double rescue that has taken place and a purpose that maybe he rescued her then for himself. Don't you love that? So if you guys liked listening to Karen today, go ahead and go to her website, Karen Kingsbury. And for my NaNoWriMo writers that are listening to this today and taking notes, go ahead and buy her books, take a highlighter and highlight where she demonstrates the very principles that she's talked about today. Because I believe success leaves clues. And when you are a successful writer, as you are in in Karen Kingsbury, she's doing something right, guys. You don't get to be a number one best-selling author. You can't buy it. Just like you can't buy your way into the NFL or the NHL or the NBA, you can't buy yourself into being a number one New York Times best-selling author. You either earned it or you didn't. She's doing something right, young writers. So read from her, learn from her, highlight her dialogue, highlight how she interweaves. She talked about not using said, he said, she said, he did, he did, whatever. Look at that pattern. Look at that. Learn from her. You'll be glad you did. We'll be back again next week with another great episode. Thanks for spending time with us today on Military Mom Talk Radio. We've got more than 200 episodes available to you anytime on iTunes or at our website, MilitaryMomTalkRadio.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. We look forward to another great conversation with you on Military Mom Talk Radio.